All right. How's everyone doing? Yeah, that was depressing. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I wanted to welcome you all. And today we continue in our series based on the Gospel of Matthew. And today I want to start by asking you a personal question because I know how much you love when I ask you personal questions. This is the question for you to meditate on just for a few seconds. Do you know what's your greatest need today? Do you know what's your greatest need today? See, I, I want to make the argument that we all have different needs at different times and during different seasons. And some of those needs are major needs. But I, but I want to invite you to consider that there's a huge difference between a major need and the greatest need. I want to make the argument that even though there's a lot of differences in our major needs, the one thing that we have in common is our need of a greatest need. This greatest need is the one that we needed in our past. The greatest need is the one that we need today. And the greatest need is the one that we're going to need tomorrow and the week after and the month after and the year after. So the question for some of you is then, Hannibal, can you please tell us what the greatest need is? And I'm so glad you asked that question because that's part of the reason why I studied the scripture this week. This is what we're going to talk about today. Three things. We're going to talk about the greatest need. So you get your answer. We're going to talk about the greatest challenge, which is the thing that you need in order for you to get the greatest need, and the greatest love, which is what is going to transform you so you understand the greatest need and the greatest challenge. Amen? So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you, and you got to say this. you got to pay attention. Go ahead. Just so you know, in the first service... I told the congregation to tell the same thing to the person next to uh, him or her. And one of the people would say, what is it that he just said? <laughs> so uh, pay attention, buddy. Let's go with the first point, the greatest need. Uh, the text we just read, Matthew chapter 9, the first 17 chapters. Uh, in, in there we find Jesus having interactions with three groups of people. The paralytic and his friends. Then Matthew, the writer of this letter, and his friends, and then a group of religious leaders. For my first point, we're going to look at the first encounter, which is this paralytic and his friends. And verse 2 says this, some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying in a mat, and Jesus saw their faith. Now, we don't know the whole story just, because, uh, just from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but we get the whole picture from the other Gospels. So we know, for example, that when the text talks about some men, the Bible is talking about the friends of the paralytic. It's a group of friends that love him so and so much that not only they found Jesus because they wanted Jesus to heal him, but that they would stop at nothing to bring him to Jesus. So one of the other gospels says that they went to this house and they carved a hole in the roof, um, in the roof to, to lower this man to Jesus so Jesus can perform a miracle. This group of men are so and so committed that even Jesus says that he 
that he saw their faith. Let me say it again. They would stop at nothing. So the question you got to ask is, why is it that this group of men, including the paralytic, were so committed and would stop at nothing? See, I think that we will be tempted to think that the only reason, can you say only reason? That the only reason why they were doing all of this is because they wanted this man to walk. And that makes sense. I mean, if you are paralytic, you will want to walk. And if your friends love you, they will want you to walk. You know, part of the reason why that, that makes sense to me is because if you can walk, then you can move. And if you can move, that means that you are always depending on somebody else. And if you can move, then you lack freedom to be able to go wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go. And if you can move, then you cannot provide for yourself. It is simply something awful to have. But I want to make the argument that in the context of the Gospels, there, are, there is a greater reason, or there are greater reasons why this man wants this for the paralytic, and why is it that the paralytic wants this from him, for him. This was not just about simply walking. There was more to it. See, in that context and in that time, if you were paralytic, many people in your community would look at you and assume that you were a paralytic because you were being punished by God. People would assume that you were a, par a paralytic because you were cursed by God. They would assume that you are paralytic because you are suffering the consequences of your parents' sins. Or that you are paralytic because you are suffering the consequences of your own sin. And once again, I want to make the argument that this is the primary reason why these men are so desperate to see these other men walking. Actually, I want to make the argument that the primary reason why this man wants to walk is so he can get rid of his guilt and shame. You know, some scholars think that what happened to this man happened later on in life. And I think that they're right. Part of the reason why I think that that's what happened is because of what Jesus is going to say to him later on. So put yourself in the shoes of this man. And he must be thinking every day, at every second, every hour, the rest of your life, not only I cannot move, not only I cannot provide for myself, not only I need to depend on others, not only I have all these struggles, but in addition to that, my disability is a constant reminder that I'm full of guilt and full of shame. That's what that paralysis meant to him. It was much more than simply not being able to walk. Now, this is the crazy thing. I think that we would all agree that it makes sense that you will see that as your greatest need. Being able to walk was for them the greatest need. See, they all thought that the healing will bring, uh, that this physical healing will make him, will, will change everything for him. See, they thought, and I think that many of us would think, that if God changes your circumstances, you will be good. 
See, I think that that's part of our struggle. We think that if God changes our circumstances, then we will be good. But Jesus that knows best, he knows that the greatest need is not that God changes our circumstances. See, Jesus knows that our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need, this man's greatest need is for us, is for Jesus to get rid of our shame, shame and guilt. Your greatest need and my greatest need is to be forgiven. And that's why in the second part of verse 2, Jesus says this. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows that physical healing without spiritual healing means nothing. Do you know why I say that? Because if Jesus is not dealing with your guilt and shame, yes, you could walk, but your guilt and shame walks with you. Yes, you could run, but your guilt and shame runs with you. Yes, you could work, but your guilt and shame works with you. See, for Jesus, the greatest need is not how he fixes your problems. It's how he fixes your heart. See, we think that our biggest problem, it's our problems. And Jesus knows that our biggest problem is our heart. And that's why he gives them what he needed the most. Now, pause there for a second because I want you to notice, this is how you got to read the Bible. I want you to notice that this man didn't go to Jesus and say, hold on a second, Jesus. That's not what I asked for. Did you notice that? There's no argument. There's no, wait, 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 hold on. You got this wrong. I know you mean well, but this is what I need. He didn't go. He didn't say that. Actually, the Bible is silent about what was this dude's reaction. And I think that part of the reason why the Bible is silent about this dude's reaction is because whatever was happening in his heart was much greater, much better, much more beautiful than him simply walking. No complaint whatsoever. You know, this reminds me of something that Joni Erickson Tata once said. This is a lady that has been a paralytic for 55 years. This is a lady that really wants to walk and has been praying about walking, you know, most of her life. This is a lady that knows that if your circumstances change, your life is better. But he also knows that the greatest need she had was not to walk, but the forgiveness of her sins. And this is what she says. I would rather be in this wheelchair with Jesus than walking without him. That's a crazy statement. I would rather stay the way I am, a paralytic for 55 years. I would rather stay this way without Jesus than walking. No, we should stay this way with Jesus than walking without him. You know, this thing with guilt and shame is something that we could all agree with. Even science tells you that you got to deal with your guilt and shame, you know? I was reading this week an article from uh, Psychology Today, and this is what they say. 
Unresolved guilt is like having a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off. You know what that means? That it doesn't matter what you do, how much you run, where you hide, how you distract yourself, that guilt is still there. It doesn't matter if you try to be a really, 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 really good person, your guilt is still there. They say that guilty feelings make it difficult to think straight. It makes you reluctant to enjoy life. It makes you, it takes you to self-punish. It means that it makes you want to hurt yourself or to say stuff like, I deserve this. It affects relationships. Guilty feelings may make you feel literally heavier and more stressed. See, that's one thing in which Christianity and science can agree on. You know what's the difference between those two? The solution. See, many people will tell you that if you're dealing with guilt and shame, the solution is to do whatever it takes to get rid of that feeling. Run, hide, distract yourself, think positive, value yourself, or even deny it. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. You know what the problem is with that? When you're by yourself in your room and nobody else is with you, your guilt is still there. But this is what Christianity says. Running won't be enough. Hiding won't be enough. Distractions will be enough. Boosting your self-esteem will be enough, won't be enough. Nothing will be enough. The only thing that can give you the freedom from guilt and shame, shame is when you hear Jesus saying, Take heart, sons and daughters, your sins are forgiven. Amen. It's only when you hear that. It's only when you feel that. It's only when you believe that. Take heart, sons and daughters. Your sins are forgiven. Now it's interesting because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are hearing and seeing all of this happening at the same time. And they hear Jesus forgiving these men's sins and they struggle with it, rightly so. So look at what they say in verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law saw, uh, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. You know what that means? This guy thinks he's God. I mean, who gave him the right? Only God has the right to forgive sins. Now, listen, Jesus knows that that's what they're thinking. And that's what they're saying. So in a very godly way, Jesus is about to confirm their suspicions. Look at what he says in verse 6. I want you to know. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. This is what Jesus, I find that brilliant. You know when someone is struggling with you, and then you say something or do something to confirm their struggle? That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is saying something like this, paraphrase. You think I'm God because I'm forgiven the, uh, these guy's sins? You're right, I'm God. And to confirm it. Let me show you the authority and the power that I have to forgive this guy's sins. And he raised the man again. And he heals him completely. Did you know that I'm, I'm completely sure 
that that healing at this moment for this man is extra. It's, it's an extra gift. Because the greatest gift he had already received. The forgiveness of his sins. No more shame, shame no more guilt. That's point number one. Do you have that? Are you walking with the freedom of a guiltless life? Are you walking with the freedom of forgiveness? Are you walking with the freedom of your shameless life? See, if you're not a believer just yet, that's exactly what you need. You need that from Jesus. And if you're a believer, that's exactly what you need. The forgiveness that Jesus already extended to you. Let's go to point number two. Our greatest challenge. And with this, we're going to be looking at the interaction between Jesus and Matthew. And this is going to be the, the whole argument of point number two. You won't know and you won't be able to appreciate your greatest need if you don't first are challenged with the reality of your greatest challenge. Let me say it in a different way. You won't be able to see Jesus as the for, you won't be able to see Jesus as the forgiver of your sins unless you first understand that you are really evil. Welcome to church, people. <laughs> Listen, I, I feel that one of my jobs as a, as a pastor, as a Christian, is to keep myself informed all the time that I'm still a very sinful person. That, that I'm not just a person that struggles every now and then, you know, that I, that I struggle with the things I say or think or do every now and then, but that I'm sinful, like sinful, sinful. Amen. And you too. <laughs> That's why I believe in something that, the, that theologians call total depravity. I know that sounds awful and maybe offensive for some. I want to make the argument that there's a reason why theologians use the concept of total depravity. Let me, let me explain it to you, all right? Um, there's two definitions to this. Number one, the first definition is this. is that basically, because we are fallen human beings, everything we do, including good things, are always tainted by sin. Total depravity means that even when we do good things, even in the name of Jesus, are always tainted by sin. Now, I've used this example many times here, and I will continue to use it because I think it's easier for you to see me struggling than you struggling yourself. Listen, every time I preach, I want to believe that part of my heart says I want to give glory to God, and I want to serve you well. That's part of my calling. Every time I get up here, I want to give glory to God, and I want to serve you well. But every time I get up here, there's another part of my heart that wants to take the glory, that wants to be admired every time. So don't think that because I come up here, I'm a super holy Hannibal. No, this is the struggle. Every Sunday. You know what's the difference between you and me? That I say it. That's total depravity. The other definition of total depravity, or in addition to that, 
is that because we are funny human beings, we have the potential to do crazy things. Even if you're a Christian. I find it so arrogant when people say, I would never do that. And I'm like, yes, you could. Another example for me. In my time as a pastor, I had the opportunity to sit with people that, are, that had committed uh, adultery. And they're kind of confessing and asking for help and things like that. And every time I sit with someone that makes that confession, I almost hear this voice in my head that says, Hannibal, you can do the same. You have the potential to do the same. Church, I'm dangerous, man. You're dangerous. The worst thing that you can do for you is to think that you're not dangerous. You know what's the greatest challenge? To get to that point. This is super interesting. If you don't know, if you're that person, let, let me offer this as a way for you to assess your heart. Think about the sins that you hate the most in other people. And I guarantee you that that's your struggle. Have you ever heard when people say, I hate proud people? That's right! I hate it when people are not humble. Who says you're humble? If you want to know where you are, if you want to know if this is a reality, check the sins you hate the most, and most likely those are the sins that, they, that you struggle with. This is what Romans chapter 7 says, that there is this war within our members. The greatest challenge for us is to get to the point where we truly see ourselves as true sinners. It is only when you get to that point where Jesus makes sense and he's beautiful and amazing and full of grace. It is only when you get to that point that you start to change. There is no change unless you get to that point. You know how I know that? Because that's exactly what happened to Matthew. This is part of the reason why Matthew writes his own story into the Gospels. He wants us to see that that was his journey. He got to that point. Look at what it says in verse 9. As Jesus, as Jesus went, out, went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, if you don't know about Matthew's career, let me just start with this. This is not the kind of career that you go to uh, Witten College for. This is not the kind of career that none of us would actually choose for our kids in the future. See, a tax collector, back in those days, in that context, it was someone that was a Jew. His job was to collect taxes from the Jews, but he worked for the Roman Empire. And his job was super simple, and this is how he made money. The Roman Empire would say, well, you need to collect $5 from the citizens. But you have the right to collect as much as you want as long as you give me my $5. So 
So the tax collector would charge $10, $15, $20 per person. So $5 for Rome, $15 for me. That was his job. And the Romans knew it, and the Jews knew it. Everyone knew it. Therefore, this is a man that is hated by the Romans because he's a Jew, and he's hated by the Jews because of the stupidness he's doing. Listen up. Therefore, he was a truly despicable man. No moral code. Hard heart. Sealed conscience. Did you know that that type of men tend to be more cruel than even their enemies? You know where I got that from? Um, Victor Frank um, was a, a, a Jew psychologist that was part of the concentration camps. And during the time that he was there, he actually did a whole study on, on the behavior of the people in the concentration camps. And this is what he says in one of his books. He says that he noticed that the worst people in the concentration camps, the cruelest of all, were the Jews that worked for the Nazis. That was Matthew. What a miserable life. He knows. He knows where he stands. He just doesn't care. That's when Romans says, man, he gave you up to your sins, man. He gave you up. That's Matthew. So once you see yourself like that, when Jesus says to you in verse 9, follow me. You filthy sinner, you follow me. You truly sinful person, follow me. Man, you get up and follow him. Do you know why? Because nobody would ever dare to invite Matthew, not even to, not even for ice cream. <laughs> not for a coffee. Actually, the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that once Matthew got this beautiful invitation from the Lord, he left everything for Jesus. Automatic transformation. Radical transformation. And it gets better because not only he called them to follow him, but in verse 10 he says that he went to have dinner. Jesus went to have dinner with Matthew. And not only dinner with Matthew, but Matthew and all his friends. Bunch of, quote, unquote, respectable people. Tax collectors and sinners. And this is God. This is Jesus nailing the gospel even deeper into his heart. Because in that context and in that time, you never, ever, ever, ever had dinner with a person like this. Actually, it was the opposite. You would only have dinner with family members, with the people that you love, with the people that you trusted, and with your close friends. That's it. You could have coffee with other people. You could walk around the park with other people, but dinner reserved for the people that you love the most. And this is what Jesus does. He's almost saying, listen, I know where you are. I know what you have done. I know how despicable you are. Don't matter. 
You follow me. I'll eat with you. I'll eat with you. Of course, the religious leaders are just looking around, and in verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, where does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, they're right, because in that context and in that time, nobody would eat with these people. Interesting that the word eat there is in the imperfect tense, meaning that they notice that this is something that Jesus does all the time. It's a habit he has. His habit is to hang around with the people that nobody else wants to hang around with. His habit was to have dinner with the outcasts, with the rejects, with the ones that nobody else wanted. And I'm saying that they're right is because if you were a teacher, a religious teacher, if you would have dinner with those people, it would damage your reputation. But Jesus cares two rips about reputation. He's in the business of showing love to the ones that nobody else wants. And the Pharisees couldn't figure that out. When I was prepping for this, I remember, I'm assuming that many of you guys are familiar with Matt Chandler. He's a a pastor uh, in the South. Uh, It's okay. I mean, nobody's perfect. Uh, one One of the illustrations he made uh, one, of the first, one of the first things he said that actually made him very popular in Christianity was an illustration he gave in a conference he gave. He says that when he was age 21, one of the things that transformed his life is when he goes to this concert, and in the middle of a concert, this preacher comes out, and this is a preacher that he's got good intentions, I'm sure, uh, but he wants to talk to people about sexual purity, and, he, and Chandler happened to be with one, one of his friends that is a lady that is struggling with her, her faith. He's a single mom. She's done all kinds of stuff. And she's living with a man that, is, that she's not married to. And Matt Chandler is hearing this and saying, oh, my goodness, this is going to get ugly super fast. And sure enough, it got ugly. So this preacher with good intentions grabs a rose. And he says, look at this beautiful rose. Smells delicious. I want you to touch this rose. And he passed the rose, and the rose is going around from all these places. By the time it, the circle finishes and he gets back to him, this rose is completely destroyed. And this was his powerful lesson. Who would want this rose? Nobody would want this rose. Nobody would want Matthew. Nobody would want this reject. Nobody would want that. And then Matthew, and then Chandler says, God was the rose. Jesus wants the Matthews. He wants the tax collectors and the prostitutes and sinners. This is what Jesus came for. That's what Jesus came for you. Your greatest challenge is to admit that you are there. And I think that sometimes we struggle just as much as the Pharisees. And that's why there's sometimes this sense in which we feel superior to other people. 
See, Jesus knows what these people are thinking, how they're processing. And that's why in verse 12 he says, And hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus says very clear, there are, there's only two types of people. The sick sinners and the healthy saints. But in verse 13 he says, But go, talking to the Pharisees, and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So let me paraphrase what Jesus says there and explain it in my terms. He says to the Pharisees, you think that you are righteous? You think that you are right, that you are healthy? Well, let me break the news to you. You ain't. This is Jesus for the 21st century. You think that you are righteous because you do religious things, sacrifices? No, you are sick. You are not healthy, even though you think you're healthy because you don't even know how to exercise mercy. You are so full of yourself that you think that you are superior to others, and that doesn't allow you to be merciful. Therefore, you break one of, my, one of the most simple commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. But because you think you're righteous, you cannot even do that. Oftentimes, I got to ask myself the question, am I compassionate enough? That's what the word mercy there means. Because my lack of mercy, my lack of compassion, is an evidence that I have forgotten that I'm just as sinful as most people that I live with. But I'm a sinful person saved by grace. And that grace is what transformed me little by little. You are not a finished product, you know? You are not to love only the people that are finished products. That's what the Pharisees would say. I, I could only hang around with the people that is already well. And Jesus, flip, Jesus flips that around and says, no, 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 I came here not for the well, but for the sick. And then at the end, he gives two illustrations that I'm not going to spend time on those because my time is over. I think they, they stole some of my time. <laughs> I'm just going to say them to you really quick, okay? He gives the example of this garment and this wine. And he uses two different words, new and old, new and old. And he says, you cannot put a new patch in an old garment, and you cannot put new wine in an old wineskin. And the explanation is super simple. If you put a new patch in an old garment, when you wash that, the patch shrinks and the hole gets bigger. That's simple. And with the wine is because if you have a new wine and you put, the, if it's a new wine, that means that the wine is not fermented. And as soon as the process starts, then the, the wineskin will burst because there's not enough room for that. So this is way Jesus inviting these Pharisees to take him in and love him first. He's inviting them to become new people again. But they couldn't, which is so ironic. The paralytic... The one that was cursed by God, got it. Matthew, the tax collectors and the sinners got it. 
but not the religious people. The question is why? Point number three, they couldn't see the need of the greatest love. Now, we're going to participate in communion, but please don't touch it just yet. Please, just listen. I, I want to take you back to the encounter Jesus has with this paralytic. You guys remember that after Jesus forgave his sins, he actually said to them, get up, take your mat, and go home. And you got to ask the question, what's up with that? That's weird. Was Jesus a clean freak? Well, what was the issue? What? Take your mat and go home. I want to make the argument that that mat represented all his years of pain, all his years of guilt, all his years of shame, and now he gets to walk with the one thing that is a reminder that that's what he was in the past, but not no more. It was a reminder that Jesus, when he forgives, he actually gets rid of all your shame and all your guilt. Not no more. You guys remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Phil was talking about how a leper would come into the town and he had to announce that he was a leper. Unclean, unclean, that we have to say twice in a row. Unclean, unclean. You know how awful that is? Cheater, cheater, liar, liar. But this man could come into town with a mat in his hand saying, forgiven, forgiven, accepted, accepted, loved, loved, guiltless and shameless. That is the greatest love. Did you know that Matthew has something very similar to that as well? He also gets a visual. A visual in a dinner table. A visual similar to our table, in which every time Matthew would look at that table, we'll remember that he was a tax collector, a sinner, and that Jesus welcomed, welcomed him in, that Jesus invited him to eat with him. That Matthew is no longer the tax collector, but it's a, re, it's a sinner redeemed by grace and grace alone. Now, how could Jesus forgive the paralytic if he never repented? And how can Jesus forgive Matthew if we don't know? At least in the text, he doesn't say that he repented. See, I think that for the paralytic and Matthew, that was just the beginning of their journey. You know why? Because the only way that Jesus, God, could forgive sins is when someone pays for the consequence of that sin. So Jesus has the ability, the power to forgive sins because later on he will go to the cross and take upon himself the punishment that this paralytic deserved and take upon himself the punishment that Matthew deserved. And this is why we participate in communion. Now you can grab your cup. See, one of the reasons why we participate in communion is because we need to remember and see 
The same way the paralytic saw and the same way Matthew saw the cost of your forgiveness. See, the only reason why you and I are forgiven is because Jesus took upon himself what we all deserved. So if you're a believer, this celebration is for you. It's another way in which not only we hear, but we see and remember that you are no longer a slave to your sin and your shame, shame and your guilt. That Jesus paid it all. And if you're not a believer just yet, this is an invitation for you to receive the freedom that Jesus gives. It is possible for you to be free of your guilt and shame. Just hear his words in which he says, take heart, my son and my daughter, your sins are forgiven. So let's remove the first, uh, the top that, has to do, that is with the bread. Or the cover that is on top of the bread. And this is what the Bible says. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now let's remove the second cover. And I want you to see that Jesus invited us to have dinner with him. A costly dinner. No cheap food. Costly food. You know how costly? His blood. You may participate. Don't ever forget what your greatest need is. Don't ever forget that you are a great sinner. But don't ever forget that you have a great Savior. Amen. Lord, we ask that just as these elements center into our system, may the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great healer, the forgiver of sins, the shame remover, the guilt eraser, went to the cross to make us whole again. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...